This program is a production of Restoring the Core, an initiative designed to assist those wishing to go deeper into classic Christianity, with resources available in a connected age, online at RestoringTheCore.com. This is the Lens of Glory, Class Session 8. Welcome to the Lens of Glory, a program dedicated to demonstrating that the Bible can be read through the lens of the glory of God. I'm Walter Hampel. This and all of the programs in this series of podcasts were recorded during Sunday School at Troy Christian Chapel in Troy, Michigan, the United States of America. The purpose of this class is to demonstrate the linkage between Jesus Christ and the glory of God as found in the Bible. Since the Bible shows us that it is written about and centers on Christ, the Bible also can be read with a viewpoint or lens, where we see that the glory of God is a dominating theme of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. A Christ-saturated Bible must also be a Bible which is filled with the glory of God. The following is the audio for this class session. Let's pray. We'll get started. Our Good and Holy Father, we thank you that you gathered us on this January morning to study again the things of your glory in your word. May you be glorified in this, and may we understand the depths of just how far deeply this should reach into our lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. amen. Okay, uh, let's see, some old business from a week or two ago. If you are interested, I still have a few copies of an article that I mentioned several weeks ago, called Three is the Loveliest Number. It's about the Trinity. Uh, anyone still wants one? Thank you. Sure. No. I'd like to move. One more? Was that last? I was handed out last week. Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, here you go. All Let us continue on. I want to talk about the glory of God and God's purposes. When we think of glory, we typically think of things that are really majestic, honorable, uh, maybe to some extent fun. Uh, they grab our attention, they grab our hearts and minds. However, I think there's something in us that we have to wrestle through the idea that suffering and the glory of God do go hand in hand. If you think about it, that's pretty much what it has to be. Think about the alternatives. If human suffering is completely disconnected from the glory of God and God's purposes, it means that suffering that we face in this world is random, purposeless, and has no meaning. I think that's where things go if you disconnect those. Scripture indicates a number of places where God's glory and suffering and death go hand in hand. And I think, again, that's counterintuitive to us. There, uh, there is that sense of... Uh, these things shouldn't be happening. You, you might remember what Peter said after Jesus asks his disciples, Who do men say I am? 
says, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, textbook classic, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Like, yep. And by the way, Peter, you didn't gin that up on your own. God gave that to you. And moments later, when Jesus is describing the suffering he's going to be going through, we have Peter who says, God forbid this will never happen to you because the idea of a suffering Messiah just wasn't supposed to be. And of course, remember Jesus' great comment. Uh, at one moment, he's praising Peter for saying, yes, you've got correctly that I'm the Son of the living God. And he says, get behind me, Satan, publicly. Not, not cool, but it, it, there's an understanding, I mean, on Peter's part, about Christ. What I'm saying is, when we come to the point of suffering, we have to understand God's glory is still behind it. And there are a few places we can see that. And again, let's open up our scriptures and get a look at this. Uh, I am going to ask, by the way, uh, if the screen starts to go a little yellow, please let me know. I've been wrestling with making sure that the screen looks proper, but there are some pins that are disconnected or whatever, and it this shifts a little bit. Uh, the display gets a little messed up. So uh, I might not, because on my screen, everything looks great. I mean, you're the one who's seeing what's up there. Uh, most of what we're going to be taking a look at is going to be in the Gospel of John. So let's take a look at Gospel of John, chapter 11. I'm going to go through verses 1 through 4. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. Now, again, context. Keep in mind, has Jesus done healings of sick people up to this point? He has. So the fact that Jesus has a, a track record of healing people who are ill is already in place. It's not like he's never done this before and somebody's asking him to do something that he hasn't done yet. He's already done this. So he's got the track record. Continues on. Um, verse 4. When he, that is Jesus, heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, I'm not going to read the rest of the account. I think we're familiar enough with the account. It says, when Jesus heard Lazarus was sick, rather than getting up and go, going to heal him, and get up and go there, it says he stayed where he was at another two days. For lack of a better term, to make sure he was good and dead. But here's Jesus saying this won't end in death. Here are the people trying to piece all this together. And, and Jesus even, in a sense, uncharacteristically starts to become a plain speaker at this point with his disciples. When they say, well, oh, and Jesus says, well, Lazarus is asleep, I'm going to wake him up. Of course, one of the disciples says, well, if he's, a, if he's sleeping, he'll get better. Jesus goes, okay, fine. Lazarus is dead, and I'm glad for your sakes, and for their sakes, I didn't get up and go 
Again, God is being glorified through what happens. One of the things that we can have a, a little bit of, I think, of maybe a disadvantage of, or maybe an advantage, depending on how you want to view it, we have the entirety of the account before us in John chapter 11. We didn't live through it. Remember, it takes about four days to go through all of this because of when Jesus is first informed and when he finally gets to Bethany in order to uh, call Lazarus out of the grave. Try to understand what's going on in the heads of Mary and Martha. Maybe even possibly Lazarus. The text doesn't say this, but if he's conscious through this illness, he might be wondering, where's Jesus? I mean, I thought we were good buds. I thought we were friends. Where is he? What, what's going on here? That tension, the, the human unknownness between the time Jesus is told about this and the time that Lazarus walks out of the grave. Try to remember, these are real human beings going through this. These aren't precious moments figurines who are like just you know, looking amazed at Jesus. Real human beings going through real life and the real struggle with death and trying to understand why can't this miracle worker do something for us. And it's not because he wasn't going to, but he was going to do it so spectacularly that God would be glorified through it. And I think it's a good principle for us to remember as well that every one of us lives through some form of struggle, some form of crisis, whether it ebbs and flows. I mean, things might be going great now, next week, who knows. Maybe you're going through a heart wrencher right now. I mean, I don't know. However, when we see what happens here and understand God is walking along with us, but in the process, he's being glorified by what you're going through in life, what I'm going through in life. Even if it's, maybe it could be your kids have walked in the faith. Maybe you have a friend or a relative who is, uh, who's trapped up in pornography or drugs or any of the laundry list of things that we could give nowadays that just enslave human beings. And you can see it clearly that you're, you want to tell this child or friend or whoever else, you're destroying yourself and the suffering you're going through. Somehow in the midst of that, God is still going to end up being glorified. And remember, we know the end of the story in John chapter 11. We don't know the end of our own stories yet. And this is where I really think faith comes in, in terms of understanding God is being glorified in our suffering. Let's take a look at the Last Supper. Well, yes? I just read a book that called that the Joseph Principle, that we think that um, all our stories are going to end up like Joseph, where we turn out to be you know, rich and wonderful and everything works out. And we look at those here in the Bible, and that happens to you extraordinarily. But it, it, God might be glorified in a different way than we think. All things work together for good. I'm going to be healed. I'm going to going to work out. But that's not in our, that counterintuitive thing is the way it is. So... No, that's good insight. Uh, I, I am going to bring up a point that kind of dovetails with that a little bit later on today in the session about just living our lives in relatively <clears throat> quiet, mundane moments that maybe the end of the things in our human life aren't going to be spectacular. 
or the changes that God brings about aren't going to, um, how do I put it? You might not think it's praise report worthy at church. Um, trust me, it will be, but it might not seem as spectacular. And yeah, how many people have lived lives in which, humanly speaking, they didn't get an answer or the expected answer this side of the grave? Yeah, very good point. Thank you, Diane. Let's take a look at John chapter 13, verse 31. Jesus speaking at the Last Supper. Let me give you some uh, quick context. Right before this, Judas has left. He, in a sense, has been called out by Jesus, and Judas is now, Judas has left the building. And Jesus says in verse 31, when he that was Judas was gone, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself, and will glorify him at once. So, there is this phase that as Judas is now gone, the betrayer is now, or the betrayal is now, in a sense, started. It's in motion. Judas is out. He's now going to be arranging with the priest for what's going to be happening later that night. Jesus is already in the beginnings of his suffering. And he says now that the Son of Man, now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. I don't know that, I know that we can't ever understand fully what Jesus went through during this time, the, during the time of the Last Supper, during his prayer in the garden, the arrest, the crucifixion. Humanly speaking, yeah, maybe you could say, yeah, in terms of beatings, pains, and the like, you could say, yeah, you could make a comparison. But in terms of what he's going through, the sense of separation from his father to pay for the sins that he's paying for, you find that um, there's a sense of agony in Jesus, the sense of separateness from his father that's already, I think, starting to grow here. But despite the fact of Jesus' suffering, he says, the Son of Man is now what? Did he say agonized? He says, no, he's glorified, and God is glorified in him through this. Let's go back another chapter, John chapter 12, verses 20 through 29. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we, want, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. <coughs> Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world, look, wait, I'm sorry. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So far I go with this. 
uh, whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this reason I came to this hour. In the midst of this angst that Jesus is going through, what's his next comment? Father, glorify your name. Interesting thing happens immediately upon this. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. So again, here's Jesus in the midst of the beginnings, the understandings of what he's going to be suffering. And he can say, Father, glorify glorify my name. And Father says, I have. And again, look at the, again this linkage to suffering. That in the Christian sense, we cannot disconnect suffering from the glory of God. Uh, let me jump ahead to the prediction of Peter's death. This is also... Uh, well, yes? Yeah, please. Please, Rand. Um, when God says that, uh, I'm wondering if I'm understanding this correctly. And the way I'm trying to understand this is that God is being glorified when we, in our present day, when we worship him, we give him thanks for his death on the cross because in his death we have life. Is that what this means? Is that what, they're, what God is pointing to? Well, I think in the case of Jesus, what, what's happening here is the fact that he is the one who's actually going through this. And, and he's about to enter upon his sufferings and his death. That he's, again, he's doing this willingly, voluntarily. Uh, Gospel John, or the accounts in the Gospel of John also make it clear that Jesus is a good shepherd. He's the one who voluntarily lays down his life for his sheep and has the authority to lay his life down and also to pick it back up again. So I think what's happening here is that God is glorifying the Son for what he is doing in obeying the command of his Father to endure this. That's where I think it's going. Any other questions or comments before we move on? Let's continue on. Uh, I'm going to jump to the prediction of Peter's death, John chapter 21, so it's the very end of the uh, Gospel of John. And I think we're well aware of the accounts of Peter and other disciples are out fishing one day. This is after Jesus' resurrection. Jesus tells them, put them down on the other side. They do it. Like, it's the Lord. They, they recognize him. And again, keep in mind, there's this rather interesting thing you notice in several of the post-resurrection accounts is that Jesus is not immediately recognizable by his disciples. I'm not sure why that is. I mean, I don't know if he took a different, somehow put on a different face or if there's just something different about his face. I mean, think about it in a negative sense. If you've ever seen somebody who's just really really tired, they've just gone through the mill, and you see them go, wow, you look five years older, I wouldn't have recognized you, but I didn't know where they have a name tag. But I mean, I mean, this can even happen to us within the scope of our own lives. Or maybe you're just so bright and cheery and 
People go, wow, I haven't seen you smile like that. I almost didn't recognize you. Um, it, it, it can happen. Actually, or if somebody hasn't seen you for a while, um, there's a friend of ours, Kim Jones, who um, died about almost 15 years ago now. Uh, her children's grandfather had died, has died a few months ago. Charlie Jones, some of you knew him. And I recognized Kim's daughter, Alyssa, because we kept up some contact with, uh, with Alyssa. I, I'd seen her before. I said, oh, how are your brothers doing? And she said, ask them. They were sitting right next to her. I didn't recognize them. So the passage of time, it's like, oh, remember me? Like, I didn't say I remember you, and I don't know what you look like. Uh, but I'm just saying, in the same case with Jesus, something is different about him that they find, the disciples finally catch on. That's the Lord. So all of that, Jesus then asked Peter three times, do you love me? And that, that back and forth we're familiar with, that is often seen as Peter's, in a sense, unduel or undoing of his denial of Christ that he did on the night of Christ's arrest. So, in verse, where am I going with this? Verse 18, Jesus says, Feed my sheep. I tell you the truth. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. So again, here's Peter being given this preview of what's going to happen to him. And as you may or may not know, according to church custom, or I should say tradition, there's nothing in scriptures that confirms this. Peter was crucified in Rome roughly in the mid-60s A.D. under Nero. He wanted by his own desire to be crucified upside down because he thought it was, he was unworthy to be crucified in the way that his Lord had been crucified. So, even here, John sees what Jesus says as this precursor of what's going to happen in the death of Peter. But where I'm going with this isn't necessarily the details of how Peter dies, but what's behind the suffering, where John indicates that this is the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And that's something that may be a little unpleasant to our thinking, but it's here in Scripture, that those who are dying in the Lord... Those who suffer for the Lord are glorifying God in the way that they die. That at the moment you leave this earth, it's not as if God says, well, you know, things are getting a little grisly down there and I really can't bear to look. Um, you know, come on up anyway. Uh, nothing like that. You have the sense of that God is honored by the way that his saints die for him, even in the midst of terrible suffering. He sees us through it. He doesn't necessarily end it, the suffering, and he will well with death. But where I'm going with this is that suffering and the glory of God are so linked, and you can see that here. Uh, let me go with one more example. And I, one, one quick, yeah, please. One quick point. There are countless stories of people dying you know, in, in medicine, and, and it's very clear that overwhelmingly people who have true faith die differently than people who don't. 
and, and have this peace about them and, and the, I guess you call it stoicness of going through it, mm -hmm. the sense of not having <clears throat> fear of, of the end. So, yeah, I think not only Peter, but uh, any, any true believer can have that same uh, sense of, of peace and then, in the sense, then glorifying God by, by their by their witnesses that they're, they're going on to be with him and there's no no fear about it. So that's, that's I think, a sense of, of the same thing happening to any any Christian as they uh, exemplify that. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, I've heard accounts of people who, Christians who, let's say, have died, I'll say, a peaceful death as in a nonviolent death and that's very much been the case. Uh, and even the death of those who have died violently um, I think of a man named Justin Martyr, roughly third century, nice 100 year swath to work with. Uh, Justin Martyr, you might already be able to tell by the name kind of where things are going. Uh, but interestingly enough, Justin Martyr became convinced of the truth of Christianity when he was in an arena. I don't know if it was in Rome, but it was somewhere in the Roman Empire. And he's watching Christians who are being martyred. And he watched the way that they died. And he knew that this was unnatural. I mean, in the best sense. This isn't the way people die when you sick the white drivers <coughs> on them. And that something about that grabbed his attention. And that the way that the martyrs died was a final witness. As you may know, the word martyr or martyrs means in Greek, witness. And the very way that they died glorified God. What? Oh, yeah, Sue. I have a weird question. So, in God can is it true that God can only be glorified through that if um, we're a believer, they're a believer. If it's a non-believer, does that mean he's not glorified then? Because you know what I'm I think to say? he is, but. I'm going to have to watch how I say this. Uh, somebody who's a non-believer, what happens is that I believe God is glorified in the sense that his verdict against them is true and right. That it's one thing for God to say to a believer, basically come up here with me, uh, you, belong, you belong with me, you belong here in glory, with us, with the saints, with Christ. For someone who has rejected Christ, the way that, the way that they've turned their backs on him, whatever thing they say at the end, is a testimony, in a sense, to what God has said being true. Mm -hmm. That those who accept him, I'm not going to say die peacefully, but die in a way that glorify God. And those who are not believers, in a sense, will still glorify God, but in a different way. Uh, I've used this before and I actually saw this uh, about a week or so ago. Again, a statement that says, wait, I'm trying to remember how this works. It was a bumper stir I saw originally. Um, no one's life is ever a waste. They can always serve as a bad example. <laughs> and I think that that kind of holds true in this case for somebody who's an unbeliever. That even if they die stoically and maybe you know, seemingly peacefully, uh, they've still left a testimony behind of, of rebellion. 
let me give an example. I let me put this with some decorum. Uh, Julie and I had the chance to be uh, near someone who was about about two weeks away from dying, and we wanted to uh, speak some words of comfort to this woman, and we asked to pray. And despite the fact this woman was incapacitated by a stroke. She did everything she could in her physical power to turn away and not listen to us. I think that is the inner example of someone who, even if they can't physically run away from you, in their heart and mind, they're trying to. So hopefully that answers your question. I thought I saw another hand. Oh, yeah, it's Rose. I don't know if anybody else feels like this, but when I hear of suffering in other countries where Christians are laying down their lives and we're living in the United States where it's not likely we're going to die for Christ uh, you know by being killed or martyred or so on and I think are they a special group or is God going to say to us you know you didn't lay down your life for me uh, it just gives me a sense of guilt that they're dying for their beliefs, and they know that their government will kill them, but they go ahead anyway and do it. That's an interesting thought uh, in terms of the reflection behind this, because if you think this through, think about how many different factors go into our lives, especially as believers. I mean, there are some people who die at a very young age. Uh, I think of Trisha McFarland. I mean, many of you may remember Trisha. Uh, there's a memorial plaque to her in the fellowship halls. Some of you yes. would, may not have had the chance to ever meet her personally. Uh, Trisha was only 16 when she died. I have socks that are older than that. But I still use. I, I'm just saying that's, that's pretty young. I mean, by our human standard, that's pretty young to die. And yet, somehow she glorifies God. Now, I haven't had to face death at the age of 16. I've lived at least 40 years beyond that, and however else longer I face. I've had to live through 40 more years of life than Trisha did, at least. Uh, there are challenges I've had to face she never did. There are challenges she had to face that I never did. I mean, that's true for all of us. And where I'm going with that is, that somehow God has put us where he has and when he has to glorify him. And I, please understand, I'm not trying to be glib about this, because there are people in other countries, I mean, go through a laundry list, Iran, China, Yemen, North Korea, Vietnam, Muslim-dominated countries where Sharia law is the law. I mean, all of these places where, like you said, Rose, people lay down their lives for Christ. However, God has placed us here in this culture for a reason. And somehow we're supposed to glorify God in the midst of this. And in some ways, it may be tougher for us than it was for them in these other countries. And here's where I'm going with that. In terms of physical suffering, I'm not going to make it's no contest. They, they got it. But what's one of the things that can really erode a Christian's testimony and faith? Perhaps luxury, perhaps being given all of these different things that we have materially. Uh, God says, and I think it's in Deuteronomy chapter 8, 9, and 10, 
where he describes what happens when the people of Israel are coming into the promised land, is that they will come into a place that has houses that are already built, fields that are already plowed, vineyards that have already been planted, and basically all they have to do is sit down and say, thank you, Lord, I enjoy this, this is a good gift from you. But in the midst of that, God says, when you have these things and you are now settled in the land, don't forget me. But they did. But they did. <laughs> and where I'm going with this is that when you have nothing else physically, you recognize Christ is the only one who's going to see you through your day. In the United States right now, we can live under the illusion that we can do this on our own. I think it's very corrosive to faith. So uh, that's a challenge we face. So to ask, will they be in a different category? I don't know how that's going to shake out because, in a sense, all of us are in a different category, just uniquely. So I have to leave that in God's hands. I really don't know. All of that to say that. Sharon, you had your hand up? Well, you said it much better. But I was going to appeal to the, because I felt like that before, Rose, where I, should I go as a missionary to one of these countries where I can give my life for the Lord? But, but in Acts, Paul says, it is through God that you move and live and have your being, and he has ordained where where you're going to live, where exactly. you're going to be born. And so he has put us here to glorify him where we are. And if we can't do that, then what makes us think we're going to be able to do it if we do go there? I mean, we've got to do it where we are. And as you said, we have our own challenges here. And who knows when that may come upon us, where we will have to face that. Yeah, um, if I may, there's a Catholic bishop who I think in the United States said that he, he says, I expect to die in my bed, I expect my successor to die in a jail cell, and I expect his successor to die in the public square. So, just just some thoughts. Mm -hmm. uh, Sue? I'm just going to build on what Sharon said in The Light and the Glory of the Glory by Peter Marshall. He talks about the fact that initially people were suffering for their faith when they came to the United States. They, they died in the boat. They got here. They were killed by disease and Indians, and they would fast and pray and ask for forgiveness as a community. And we may go back to that again someday, but we started off that way. Right. And, I mean, literally heaven only knows the direction that's going to take in the future. I, I don't know if it means migration, mass migrations of Christians from, let's say, the United States to other countries, uh, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, God literally will know and will direct. Rose? Well, when I read, you know, uh, Revelation, where the saints are saying, when are you going to avenge us? And I'm thinking, there's no one you're going to avenge for me because I haven't been persecuted. I haven't been martyred. I haven't been uh, tortured. So I don't, you know, it seems like they have a special class, and does God expect everyone to suffer at some point just to give him glory? or but Rose, I'm just throwing that out. But, but Paul says that when one part of the body suffers, the whole, part, the whole body suffers. And just because we weren't among them, we, they are part of us. We are them and they are us. And, and so I, you know, when the martyrs are crying out, that's a, that's, they're, they are asking the Lord, will you avenge us, for, will you do, do to Satan what he has done to us? Because it is evil and it is Satan. 
And we are all, we are all persecuted by Satan in one way or another. We are all bothered by that demon. And so I, you know, if one part of the body suffers, we all suffer. That's true. And the uh, writer of the letter to the Hebrews says in the last chapter of Hebrews to remember those who are in chains as if you were in chains with them. To remember we have a sense of solidarity with uh, those who are suffering. And one thing I'll leave you with, and just a moment, David, sure. Just one thing I'll leave you with with this. I've heard accounts of Christians in places such as North Korea, where it is brutal. And they are praying for the Christians in America because of the corrosive culture we live in and how relatively easy it would be to walk away from our faith and live under the illusion we can do this all on our own. Because our faith is a danger. And they recognize that and they're praying for our strength. David? Uh, this might seem a little far afield at first. I remember seeing one time the uh, famous uh, psychologist Bruno Bettelheim on, I think it was the Dick Cavett show or something, and he, he survived a concentration camp. He was in, I forget which concentration camp, for most of the war. And he made a startling, I thought a startling comment. He said that, um, you know, he said that he's a psychologist and he's worked with all kinds of people over the years. And he says, there, there, he says there's quite possibly somebody who's suffering from severe depression somewhere in the middle of Kansas who might actually have suffer, be suffering more than actually what I endured in the concentration camp, as terrible as it was. He says, we can't really judge that kind of thing. So uh, all I was going to say is that we have the assurance from the Lord that everything that's done for him, he's aware of and no, takes notice of. And uh, I think we just have to kind of cling to that, that truth, that uh, our, our every action has to be directed to him. And he will direct our, our path, you know, so we're, you know, whether it's suffering, intense suffering, but there's also kind of silent suffering that uh, isn't that visible necessarily. Yeah, People aren't aware of, you know. Interesting insight by the psychologist. Uh, yes? Yeah, one, one of the things regarding this whole concept of, like, some of the people were talking about, if I'm really a Christian, should I, you know, go and be an evangelist to outer Mongolia or something like that? And, and I've always had that tear it, you know, at me a little bit, and, but then a, a verse that uh, somebody showed me many years ago is, is very uh, helpful, I think, and that's uh, uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 7.20, where Paul says, each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. Mm -hmm. So, and read that to mean that we're all called to be wherever we are, and that our, our work for Christ is um, based on what we do where we are. And, and he may call us to go somewhere else, and, but it, it doesn't, um, yeah, we, we are to remain in the condition where we were called and, and then work for Christ from that perspective. So, yeah, I think that's, that's, a, that's a calming influence on me in terms of here, I, I can do what Christ wants me to do right here. Exactly. He, he put me here. And, and he actually may be, how do I put this, <clears throat> he's guiding you to be you, not to be someone else. You're not, I mean, you may find interesting patterns of behavior or things you can perhaps copy from other people, but I, I'll tell this, I mean, you can say this about any one of us. The world doesn't need another Walter Hampel. It's already has one. 
Some people think that's too many. That's fine. <laughs> but it, also, the world needs you, but it doesn't need two of you. You're, you're being called to do what you are uniquely. Like Dr. Henderson was saying, and David and others, uh, God has placed us where he has and when he has. And the people who've tried to, in a sense, jump track into doing something else, God hasn't always honored that. And let me go with, remember I was telling you about uh, Justin Martyr. Some of you have heard me say this before, so if you have, tune out for a second or two. Uh, in the early church, when martyrdom was becoming a little bit more common, and then even then, keep in mind, it's been estimated that no more than 2% of Christians in the Roman Empire from the time of Nero to the time of Constantine died as a result of being a Christian. So, I mean, your odds of getting through this, I mean, just from a pure statistical sense, were pretty good. If you were a church leader, not as much. But there, early on, there was a recognition that people who were going to be martyred were, they, people or Christians saw them as being a special class, that they have already, if they've been condemned, but they haven't died yet, that God was, in a sense, giving them this kind of having one foot on earth, one foot in heaven position where they could, in a sense, see things or understand things of God that the ordinary earthbound Christian couldn't. And whether that was true or not, I'm not going to make the case for one way or the other. That was a belief. However, because of that, there were some people who thought that being a martyr would be cool. Mm -hmm. I'm not joking. Mm -hmm. And I'm trying. I'm right now. My mind is escaping me. It was somebody who was relatively, may have been origin, but somebody who said they saw a train of people who were like, look, it's a death march, literally a death march from one place to another, and a person said. I gotta go join them. I gotta go be a martyr. They're going, no, and they literally had to sit on him in order to stop him. And what has happened in the accounts of this is that people who were Christians who they weren't denying Christ, but kind of like the authorities caught up with them and they said, okay, I give up. I'm gonna be martyred. I understand. You know, may God be glorified. They quitted themselves with incredible and supernatural bravery at the time of their death. The people who wanted to like jump ship, so to speak, and go, I want to be a martyr, it's cool. When it finally came time to have the knife put to their throat or go marching out with the lions and the tigers and the bears, they go, nope, nope, sorry, uh, can I deny Christ now? You know, is it too late? Um, so the people who were doing the thing they really weren't called to do ended up not really glorifying God in the end. So, I almost sound like I'm some new age therapist here, but be who you are in Christ, and, and don't be other people in Christ. God wants you in this time and place for a reason. Yes? I was noticing yesterday on the internet, they were showing two women pictures of them, and they said how much they looked alike. But I think there's uniqueness in each one of us, and I never understood why identical twins why I dress alike. <laughs> uh, I, I could. Can, can we ask? <laughs> we, we, we can. <laughs> is it? Is that been your experience? I did. I. They, they didn't like to dress alike. No. Okay. No. Either. Yeah. Okay. Are you an ideal one? No, my my daughter's. Oh, you, I didn't. Okay, I didn't know. Okay. I don't know. 
Some some people, I guess, do. Some but people don't. Need to in each individual, no matter even if you look alike. Yeah, and, and just even if nothing else, I mean, even if you started off as physical clones of each other, or exactly the same DNA, just things like nutrition, physical experience, things like that, they'll make you unique. They'll make you unique. I don't think it'll take long. Uh, let's go to 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 14. This is more instruction as opposed to looking at a narrative. But it's Peter telling us about suffering for being a Christian. I'm actually only going to read a part of this just to make or to get the point across. Peter writes, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering. Let me stop. Ask ourselves how many times we are surprised by the painful trial. Why is this happening to me? Well, God might not let you know that right now. Uh, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So again, the way that we suffer as Christians is seen by Peter as a way of glorifying God, but it's also, in a sense, evangelistic that when people see that you're living a life that's different, especially in the time of trial, and that you aren't behaving the way other people do in times of trial. Oh, you know what I should do? That's okay. I got it. Okay, I, I, I was going to say I could shift over this one. Uh, that garners their attention. And then Peter says, and be ready to give an answer to those who ask you a reason for the hope you have, and do so with gentleness and meekness. So, I mean, there are some people who will have quote-unquote lifestyle evangelism, but it goes, it only goes that far, no words attached, and it's like, okay, uh, so if somebody's living a stoic life, is it because they're a Christian or because they're a Muslim? or because they're just really shy and they don't talk a lot. I mean, it, that leaves a lot of questions open. Because, I, okay, I'm, I'm going to probably, well, maybe I'll offend somebody with this, I don't care. Um, <laughs> you've, heard, you've heard the saying, preach the gospel and if necessary use words. That's buck. That's utter buck. The reason being, you can have people who are going to live a wonderful lifestyle, or seemingly wonderful lifestyle, very Christian-like, and somebody later could say, oh, they were a Buddhist? They were Islamic? I didn't know that. It's like, yeah, of course you didn't know, because words didn't come out. And if Christians think that their lifestyle only by itself is going to be distinct enough to get the point across, it won't. Sorry, if I just offended you. Sorry about that, but I, I, there's something I feel very strongly about. Uh, it's, I think it's attributed to Francis of Assisi. Nobody can ever find his having said that, just for what it's worth. So, taking sacred cows and just smashing them to death. Um, sorry, that, that, that's my job. Carmella, uh, yes. They shall know we are Christians by our love. 
Yes. And that means loving in very difficult times to love. And it's a sacrificial love sometimes. That the love that comes out of us just feels and looks different than the world's idea of love. And it's enduring, it stays in there, you know, because the Holy Spirit lives in us and He's love, you know. So I think that's what. I, I like what you said about staying, staying there because that's, I think that's one of the traits of something that God gives us in the midst of suffering is a grace of endurance. Because how many people have hung in there, uh, let's say praying for a lost loved one, or someone who's in desperate need, I mean, by their lifestyle they're destroying themselves, things of that sort. Or, or even a Christian who, let's say, is facing some sort of physical suffering and just hangs in there and stays with it and says, you know, I may hurt today, I, this may not be... This isn't the pleasant experience, but God will give me the grace to see my way through it. Uh, I heard an account R.C. Sproul gave. Uh, somebody he knew, I think it was a woman who was dying of some form of cancer in her early 40s. And for most of us, that seems like, wow, that's really young nowadays. Uh, and he asked her one time, I forget her name, but says, how are you doing today? And she says, R.C., sometimes it's hard to remember that I'm a Christian when I'm hugging the toilet bowl and throwing up in the morning. And you know, that, that's really the case. I mean, the, there are times in which we do go through brutal effects of suffering, and God still gives us the endurance to get through it. It, it doesn't mean we'll escape it, but maybe when we're having that chemotherapy and we feel horrible, or we're hugging the toilet bowl because we're having some sort of illness and we're just vomiting. Um, God's with us in the midst of that. He's actually seeing us through it. He's giving us endurance. I saw Diane. A real-life example for us right now is Helen Bennett. She, her Absolutely. Her everyday job and what she's doing for her husband are extremely difficult, and she is seeing God in everyday things, and that she's a real model for endurance and suffering. I, thank you. I absolutely agree. Very real life there. I mean, we aren't talking somebody from 100 years ago. We're talking one of our sisters in Christ here now. And yes, I've, I've seen that as well with Helen. Thank you, Diane. Thank you very much. Rose. I, I think I may disagree with you about um, not using words. Feel free. Because <laughs> the job I have, I'm a receptionist. And so when I started there, I just you know, did my job and, you know, tried to uh, have a very good attitude and so on. And it's over the years as they watched me that they now come to me and say, Rose, will you pray for me? Even though I, you know, didn't uh, uh, say outright, you know, you need to be a Christian or whatever. Okay. And I have more and more people coming to me now. But it was a witness at first whether they could trust Rose, whether she was for real or whatever, and so I, I find like God has put me there to talk to these people, and I love all of them. I, I have such a great love for every one of them, even though some can be quirky, but I, I just do, and it's, it's becoming more and more evident that they're coming. 
to me, uh, unlike the local bartender at the, mm -hmm. you know, my desk. Yeah. But, so. but they're coming to you. Mm -hmm. and, and I guess where I'm going with this, just to clarify, Peter's point was that when they ask you, be ready to give them a reason for why you are behaving the way you are. But it took four or five years before they got to that point where they would, you know. I, I have a brother-in-law who it has taken, I'm, so please understand, I'm not trying to one-up uh, one you on this because it could sound like I'm going to and I'm, yeah. I'm not trying to. Let me just keep it at a long, long period of time. So I, I won't have to use the hard numbers. Uh, and I pray for the opportunity to say, Lord, if I come up and tell him the message, he's going to go like, he's, he's going to block it off. I said, by what Julie and I have done, please let him come to me. And we were on an extended road trip uh, three years ago. And he asked me, well, may I ask you what the basis of your faith is? Why do you believe these things? Like, ready. But that's what Peter tells us to be, ready. So that when they come to you, you will be ready. And then where I'm going with this is if people just leave it off and just see a lifestyle and don't connect it with anything, I mean, you could just be the nicest next, the next nicest person down the street who might but be the next the nicest Buddhist. You, they can see that. Uh, they can, I think they can see there's a difference, but there are times, and I'm, please understand, I'm not saying that Christian lifestyle is completely the same as, let's say, somebody who's not a believer, but, I mean, for example, something like the Dalai Lama, uh, the head of Tibetan Buddhism, he seems like a pretty fun guy. I mean, just from interviews I've, I've heard with him, is the man spiritually lost? Yeah. And he's leading millions of people into a system that says, you can have religion without God. You can have spirituality without God. God's irrelevant. Uh, I wonder if that's even worse than somebody who's an atheist. I mean, is God not there? Not there, or, or yes? Or if somebody says, eh, it doesn't matter. I, I hate to have to answer for that on Judgment Day. Where I'm going with that is that you can have someone like the Dalai Lama who's very winsome, and it's not until you drill down and it's like, ooh, this man is not doing anything to glorify God in what he's saying, but it's not until you actually have that communication that you realize what does the, how does the lifestyle translate into what you're actually saying or what backs it up. So in your case, people are coming to you, they're talking. So again, good. Yes? Yeah, I was going to say the same thing, <clears throat> sort of addressing this subject, because it's always been a... Um, a thing of mine too, and I, I agree with you for the most part. And, and, and a good example of that is, in, in my field, there are lots of people, lots of doctors who do mission trips. The vast majority of them have nothing to do with Christianity. And yet, you know, my mission trip is, I, so, so the point is, um, unless I, a lot of people recognize that you do a mission trip, well, I, you're a good person. But there's a lot of good people. Mm -hmm. And yeah. that doesn't mean that they're Christians just because they're doing good things. And, and so I, I agree that uh, having a, in fact, you know, one of my best buddies still sort of refuses to become a Christian because he says, well, what about all these other good people? These are, I know all these good people. They can't, you can't say that they're all condemned. Well, I have a hard time fighting that. But, but the whole point of, of my, what I'm trying to say is that, um, mission trip that I'm participating in is truly a Christian mission. It means that 
our primary goal is bringing Christ to the people. We only use our medical uh, skills as an entry card. Right. And, and therefore, um, that's different. So I think you have to, yes, you can, you can entice people to ask you, like Rose is saying, um, about your faith. But until you actually verbalize it, it doesn't actually, you know, you're just another good person. Right. Right. That that's why I, I want. Uh, that's why I feel feel. I'll use the term feel very strongly. That unless somehow, how I put it, living a different lifestyle opens up the uh, gateway for conversation, for interaction, and then once that doorway is opened, Peter says, "Be ready to speak about what, why you're doing the good thing, as opposed to the person who's doing the good thing without Christ." And I'll put that in quotes because I don't know that you can do the good thing without Christ. Good. Thank you. Thank you all. Uh, got only a moment or two more. Let me see if I... You know what? Let me try. I'll, I'll, I'll go through just a few of these and we'll, uh, we'll go through. I'll try not to keep you too much longer. Beyond 11. James 1.17, I'll just refer to it. That every good and perfect gift is from above, from the Father of lights, in whom there's no shadow of turning. That... So, every good and perfect gift is from God, with no exceptions. No exceptions. And in some ways, these bear the fingerprint of God in the fact that he's given them and that they are from his hand. I want to turn to Psalm 19, verse 1, talking about God's creation. Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their word to all the ends of the world, or their words to the ends of the world. Where I'm going with this is that when you take a look at the very universe around us, you see that it declares the glory of God. And it does so visually. Uh, obviously the stars and the, the sun and the planets and the like aren't speaking to us. I don't even know a cult or false religion that believed that. I was just trying to think through, like, you know, I, I think that's that's pretty much new territory. <laughs> just, if somebody had believed that. But you, the point is, even without using words, because you can't go up to them and talk to them, they still declare the glory of God. Now, Isaiah 6, and I, we've gone here before, but there's something I want to point out about this. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, and this is... Again, Isaiah's vision of God in the temple. And let me... Let me just go to verse 3. The angels calling out to one another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, I don't know if everyone was in here when I was discussing this a few weeks ago about the Septuagint version of this passage. 
Septuagint was a Greek translation of the Old Testament, started around 250 BC, ends around 100 BC. Taking the Hebrew and some Aramaic, and then putting it into the language of the people at the time, which was Greek. The passage here, and John is alluding to this in John chapter 12, where the passage in the first verse says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and his glory filled the house. That's the way the Septuagint renders it. And you see this symmetry that's there, where it says, Isaiah sees that God's glory fills the house, the temple. And then here are the angels declaring, God's glory fills the whole earth. So, when you're taking, and I want to pick back up with this next time, when you're taking a look at the universe around you, when you're taking a look at the world around you, the imprint of the glory of God is right there. The fingerprint of God is on all of these things. The remnant or the echo of his glory is still there. Uh, one thing I'll leave you with is a point from science, but I'd like you to consider it. In science, there is a, an idea called the law of the conservation of matter and energy. It says that matter and energy are neither created nor destroyed. They can only be transformed from one form into another. So, when God creates the universe, however many years ago he did that, and he speaks into existence, let there be light, let there be, let there be. The matter you see around you, even in this room, the very matter of who, what you are in terms of your physical <clears throat> being, all of that matter was spoken into existence by God at the moment of creation. All we've done is just rearrange it. It's older, it's rearranged, but it's his, it's the remnant of his speaking forth all things. And all these things bear his glory somehow. The trick is for us to recognize how that's the case, but it's there. I'll leave you that intriguing thought. <laughs> and we will resume by the grace of God next Sunday. God bless. Take care. That is all for this session. The PowerPoints which I used for this class will be posted on both the Restoring the Core website as well as the School of the Solitary Place blog. Thank you for listening to this program. We can be contacted at mail at restoringthecore.com. We're on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash restoringthecore. You can also follow us on Twitter at RestoreTheCore. Our original blog is still active. It can be found at schoolofthesolitaryplace.blogspot.com. Thank you for listening. We hope you join us next time for the Lens of Glory.